Previously, on Cassidy is Alive. It's difficult to picture modern media without the influence of The Simpsons. It happened along the way, and a once great show kind of sucks now. Before, my fans had to be able to read to enjoy my comics, and now they can just turn on a knob and, and enjoy my cartoons. Season 3 afforded Homer more personality, becoming characterized by his simple, naive nature, love of food and beer, as well as his kind hearts, his kind hearts, his kind hearts, his kind hearts. With the end of season eight, so came the end of the revered Oakley and Weinstein era. They did not want to break the show. They believed that cycling new showrunners in and out every few seasons was necessary to keep a long-running show like The Simpsons fresh. Man at the helm when the ship turned towards the iceberg. conclusion of the acclaimed Simpsons season 8. Popular showrunners Bill Oakley and Joshua Weinstein left the show's production team so as to, quote, not break the show. It was the belief of the pair that the Simpsons showrunners must be cycled in and out every few years to preserve the quality and ensure the longevity of the Simpsons. As discussed at length in part 1, the Simpsons had been almost universally considered to be of outstanding quality in its first eight years. Crucially, The Simpsons had not felt tired, only ever fresh. And in large part, that can be attributed to the cyclical nature of which new showrunners were introduced. There had been a different yet similar vision for The Simpsons as new showrunners had been brought in every two years. As the show and years progressed, Homer Simpson had supplanted his son Bart as both the face of the program and, arguably, the most popular character in all of television. The mid-1990s had seen Homer characterized as a simple, naive man, who was the walking embodiment of sloth and gluttony. Homer was an exaggerated reflection of the middle-class American male. The town of Springfield, a reflection of suburbia. In the real-world United States, there is a Springfield in almost every state, and that is no current coincidence. For good measure, and to ensure that we're all on the same wavelength here, let's consider the character of Mr. Burns. While very few of us actually know somebody exactly like Mr. Burns, in appreciating the nature of parody, we can all relate him to somebody that we know personally. 
And for the most part, the same can be said for all of the Simpsons' recurring cast. And the reason for this is that The Simpsons was not a cartoon. Of course, yes, it is literally a cartoon. Though from season 2 until the end of season 8, The Simpsons feels like anything but. By comparison, it was more authentic than any of its live-action contemporaries. And most ironically, a new thing called reality TV. And that brings us to 1997. Season 9, and a new showrunner, whose visions for The Simpsons was a primetime, all-ages cartoon. His name? Mike Scully. The Simpsons has been on for almost 20 years. If you really don't like it, maybe it's time to change the channel. <laughs> My name is Mike Scully. I'm 40 years old. I believe in taking care of myself and a balanced diet, and a rigorous exercise routine. There is an idea of a Mike Scully, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me. Only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense that our tastes and humour are comparable, I am simply not there. Mike Scully was a talented underachiever, born and raised in the northwestern United States. The story of how Scully came to be part of the Simpsons team is actually very similar to the story of Matt Greening. He had moved to Los Angeles in pursuit of a writing career, and would almost accidentally find himself landing a job in the television industry. He wrote for unmemorable and bland sitcoms, such as The Royal Family and What a Country, training himself in television writing by imitating the style of far more successful programs such as Taxi. He was relatively unknown when former Simpsons showrunner David Merkin hired him as a writer to replace the irreplaceable Conan O'Brien. This was based on some sample scripts that Scully had claimed to have written. In reality, these scripts were actually rewrites of older Simpsons episodes, amended to be in that ludicrous yet endearing style of David Merkin-era Simpsons. These sample scripts are available to read online, and they are indisputably rewrites. It's not up for debate, they are literally rewrites. Fanfiction alternatives to popular episodes, though most of them they place this strange emphasis on the character of Lisa Simpson. We'll discuss that in due time. Despite contrary evidence, for going on 25 years now, Mike Scully has maintained that these scripts were completely original concepts. Beginning his tenure as a Simpsons writer in season 5, Scully wrote the episodes Lisa's Rival and Two Dozen and One greyhounds. Though, again, reality is a bit different to how Mike Scully recounts it. Both of these episodes were amended scripts that had been originally written by Conan O'Brien and the team of Gene and Weiss, respectively. Scully's first two truly original scripts would come in season six, 
Lisa on Ice was the first of them, an episode detailing the sibling rivalry between Bart and Lisa, who played for competing ice hockey teams. The idea stemmed from the interest in the sport of ice hockey that Mike Scully had shared with his daughters. The other episode was Marge Be Not Proud, a Christmas special wherein Bart is caught shoplifting. This was based on Scully's real-life experience being caught shoplifting himself at age 12, and he had written it with the intention of teaching his daughters a moral lesson about stealing. It is very important to note that Mike Scully's first two original Simpsons scripts were ostensibly gifts for his five daughters. And while they are both popular with fans and genuinely very good episodes, it should be understood that these were not written with Simpsons fans in mind. Scully continued to write and co-write Simpsons episodes throughout the Oakley and Weinstein era that was season 8 and 2, also continuing to insert nods to his children throughout. Along with that, Mike Scully tended to put a lot of focus on Homer and particularly Lisa, oddly favouring the most and least popular characters of the main cast. As mentioned previously, Scully was promoted to showrunner and executive producer in 1999, beginning with season 9. Sorry, 1997, (laughs) beginning with season 9. Oh my god. A role that he would have for four long seasons, and entering the 21st century. Twice as long as any that had served as showrunner before him. He was also 40, making Mike Scully the oldest Simpsons showrunner up to this point in time. Simpsons staff have praised Mike Scully for his organization skills, being referred to as a great manager of people. I have no reason to doubt that, and you shouldn't either. Simpsons fans, however, have criticized Scully's tenure as a period of decline in show's quality. Myself, as a woman that firmly believes that The Simpsons' golden age is basically the greatest television show of all time, I will say here and now that it is absurd to lay the blame at the feet of Mike Scully and Mike Scully alone. Be that as it may, however, the damage done to The Simpsons by the end of season 12 was fucking irreparable. Mike Scully was the captain of the ship, and this Titanic was about to hit a fucking iceberg. Season 9 of The Simpsons commenced on September 21st, 1997, with the episode The City of New York vs. Homer Simpson. It's a travel episode, where the Simpsons family go to Manhattan. It is a decent episode, surely among the hits of what was the hit-and-miss season 9. Though there is something admittedly very peculiar about this episode. Doing away with almost all sense of plot, the City of New York vs. Homer Simpson tends to be in the format of gag comedy. A string of one-off jokes and sight gags with very little plot relevance. While this kind of thing is not uncommon in sitcoms, and certainly isn't uncommon for modern Simpsons, it was for classic Simpsons. 
the first eight seasons of the show approached comedy similarly to another 90s sitcom, Seinfeld. In my opinion, the, the closest contemporary for classic Simpsons. A typical Seinfeld episode centered his humor around a developing plot. Elaine has a goofy dance. It's videotaped and distributed, and the episode climaxes with all of Manhattan's Upper West Side imitating her dance. Similarly, in a classic Simpsons episode, Bart gets drunk, causing alcohol prohibition in Springfield. Homer then becomes the beer baron and illegally produces alcohol from his basement. After the town lifts the prohibition, Homer closes the episode with this line. To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Sure, it's still funny in a vacuum, but coming in halfway through an episode, a viewer will surely miss the comedic minutia. In juxtaposition, the city of New York versus Homer Simpson is structured as so. Barney steals Homer's car and leaves it in Manhattan. The Simpsons travel to New York, where funny things occur. Homer retrieves his car, and after 22 minutes, they drive home. There are no details to be missed. It's practically a different program. Instead of scrutinizing American television by means of subversion, it is the status quo. In just one episode, Mike Scully Simpsons sets out to meet the mainstream expectation when the show had previously established itself as a perversion of culture. Of the 25 episodes that make up season 9 of The Simpsons, seven of them were holdovers from former showrunners. Among these was Lisa's Sacks, an episode that reveals the origin of Lisa's trademark saxophone. This, arguably the season's best, was a Gene and Weiss creation. Another of the more popular season 9 episodes was The Joy of Sect, wherein the Simpsons family joins a cult. This episode was conceived by David Merkin. In fact, of all of season 9, there only exists two popular episodes that can be attributed to Mike Scully. Dust Boss, an extended parody of Lord of the Flies, and The Cartridge Family. It's the one where Homer buys a gun, and it's actually based on a plot outline by Sam Simon pitched as early as season 2. Now, I'm sure that Mike Scully is a very talented man and a great guy. As a writer, he is obviously far more successful than I am or ever will be. And I am certain that in his own right, he's a very creative mind. But he simply was not the right mind to be in charge of The Simpsons. There is a certain ego to the Scully years that becomes undeniable when viewed analytically. Scully did not amend his creative process to accommodate for The Simpsons. He did the polar opposite, changing The Simpsons to accommodate himself. Now before moving on, we have to talk about two more Season 9 episodes. The first is Breathe. It's the seventh episode of the season, entitled Bart Star. Homer becomes the coach of Bart's football team, 
and he practices nepotism by showing preferential treatment to bots. All in all, it's actually a pretty lousy episode, though there are some solid laughs to be had. The real problem with that is that it's Mike Scully playing the self-insertion game. At age 10, Scully was on a football team himself, and his coach was one of the other children's fathers, who, as you may have guessed, practiced nepotism. By his own proud admission, this episode was intended to be a passive-aggressive shot at that man from Mike Scully. Scully was 40 years old at the time, meaning that he used The Simpsons to reconcile a grudge that he had held for at least 30 years. And this kind of petty shit would only get worse over the next three seasons. And now, yes, it is time to discuss The Principal and the Pauper. Episode 2 of Season 9, and the first outright bad episode of The Simpsons. Tribute to Seymour Skinner. Pull over, driver. Now, I know the school normally serves cake only on Thursdays. And I'm also well aware that today is Friday. Nevertheless, I have a surprise for you. Hope y'all brought forks and plates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, what the... An enjoyment buzzer. <laughs> oh, thank you. What a wonderful night to share with the people and the town that I love. I have never been happier or prouder to be Seymour Skinner. You're not Seymour Skinner. Skinner! Skinner? I'm Skinner. Seymour? I'm... Mother! She's my mother! Will someone remove that crazy man, please? No, no, he's... He's not crazy. It's true, I'm... I'm... An imposter. That man is the real Seymour Skinner. This is the single most controversial episode of The Simpsons, at least for the moment. Before getting into the episode's plot, we need to understand a certain term that is often used in criticism. The term, jumping the shark. Let there be no mistake, the principal and the pauper is the exact moment when the Simpsons jumped that proverbial shark. In the 1977 episode of Happy Days, the character Fonzie jumps over a literal shark while riding on water skis. It was a publicity stunt, and the gimmick had strayed so far from the original concept of Happy Days that it took the show to a level of absurdity that it could not possibly recover from. This term, jumping the shark, refers to this moment, the moment when a long-running work of fiction has indicated that it's exhausted all creative focus, that the work, or more so those creating it, has gotten to the point when retaining viewer attention by any desperate means necessary takes precedence over plot development and established conventions 
of that same work. Generally speaking, the shark is jumped as popularity declines, which is what makes the principal and the pauper even more bizarre and questionable, being that The Simpsons was at the peak of its popularity at the time. Now, let's take a look at the episode itself to understand why it is so widely hated. Seymour Skinner, very popular character, is celebrating his 20th year as principal of Springfield Elementary School. It was a surprise party, and it all goes well, until an unknown man shows up, and he claims to be the real Seymour Skinner. As it turns out, the Seymour Skinner that we knew and have invested eight years in was actually an imposter this whole time. His real name is Armin Tamzarian, a street punk who enlisted in the US Army to avoid a jail sentence. He served under Sergeant Seymour Skinner, who helped to guide the troubled young man to live a better life. The real Seymour Skinner dreamed of being an elementary school principal after the end of the war. Eventually, he is declared missing and presumed dead, which leads Armin to Springfield, where he means to deliver the news of his friend Seymour's death to his mother, Agnes. Agnes, however, mistakes Armin for her son Seymour, and finding himself unable to break the tragic news to her, Armin Tamzarian assumes the role, and he becomes Principal Skinner. And yes, this is utterly absurd. I am very aware. And the writers were too. Back in the present day, the now-outed Armin Tamzarian leaves the capital city to resume his life as a thug. Meanwhile, the real Skinner fills the void left. But the townsfolk don't really like him. They... And yes, even Agnes Skinner herself prefer Armin to the real Seymour Skinner. The episode ends with Armin Tamzarian reassuming the role of Seymour Skinner and the town of Springfield banishing the real Skinner by quite literally running him out of town on a rail. This is an image of a raised middle finger. Colloquially, this gesture means fuck you. The Fox Network might as well have aired an image similar to this one for 30 minutes in place of the principal and the pauper. It would have reached the exact same end. Critical and fan response to the episode have been very negative. Along with accusations of jumping the shark, the principal and the pauper has been labelled as a mistake by the likes of Matt Groening. Perhaps the episode's biggest critic was Harry Shearer, the man who voices Principal Skinner. In a 2001 interview with the East Bay Express, he described the retroactive continuity as taking something that the audience has built eight or nine years of investment in and tossing it in the trash can for no good reason, further describing the idea as arbitrary, gratuitous, and disrespectful for the audience. The real kicker, though, this wasn't a Mike Scully episode. It was a season 8 holdover, conceived by Bill Oakley and Joshua Weinstein. No! <laughs> oh, 
Oh, yes. The possible worst episode of the entire series. At the very least, the one that had opened the floodgates came from the minds of two men generally heralded as geniuses. Mike Scully, to his credits, was also against the very idea of the episode. Though conceived by Oakley and Weinstein, it was written by a man named Ken Keeler. Keeler offered an extremely pompous defense of his work on the episode's DVD commentary track, confusingly describing it as being in response to fans that disliked it. It's unclear if Ken Keeler was a clairvoyant or a time traveler. I simply could not find that information. Oakley and Weinstein were a little more unfair to the audience on that same DVD commentary. As an artist myself, I can surely understand taking pride in your work. Though how Oakley and Weinstein responded to valid criticism was just fucking childish. It reflected a hubris that, in the course of my research, saw me lose a lot of respect for these guys. They claim that we, the audience, just didn't get it. The episode is apparently very clearly non-canonical, and it's on us as fans for not immediately realizing this. This is an image of a raised middle finger. Ogley and Weinstein might as well have just responded to the criticism with an image similar to this. Season 10 debuted on August 23rd, 1998, with what I would consider one of the last actual good episodes of The Simpsons, Lard of the Dance. Despite having won an Annie Award, Season 10 is commonly cited as the first poor season of The Simpsons. Not including Mike Scully, the writing staff had grown to 16 people, more than the show had ever had up to that point in time. Among them was the returning L. Jean, and he'll become a little more important a bit later, but just keep in your mind that L. Jean had returned to the Simpsons staff. Season 10 also saw the departure of longtime Simpsons writer David S. Cohen, and along with him, Simpsons creator Matt Groening. Now, Groening hadn't left entirely, though it was season 10 that his creative influence all but completely disappeared from The Simpsons as a series. Cohen and Groening, at this point, would create Futurama. And while I would absolutely love to gush about this wonderful television show, it simply strays too far from my point. Maybe one day we'll talk about this. So, while subject to much criticism, on a personal level, I still do appreciate season 10 for what it is. For as much as can be rightfully negatively scrutinized about the Mike Scully years, they are far from terrible. Seasons 9 through 12 aren't outright awful. Of course, that is just my opinion. I'd still much rather be watching any given episode from these seasons than I would a lot of other programs. The Simpsons, it was not too far gone by this point, but it was certainly en route, on a one-way road, and it was unable to turn back. 
the focus on character-driven plots had been supplanted by outlandish gags, with an overemphasis on the celebrity cameo, two aspects that would only spread like a cancer over the 20-plus years that followed. There used to be an expectation that each Simpsons episode would be of excellent quality, if not a masterpiece. And with very few exceptions, that expectation had been met for almost a decade. By season 10, that expectation itself had gone away. And by the end of season 12, the expectations that the episodes were so much as consistently good had completely died out. And saddest of all, perhaps the most beloved piece of The Simpsons had faded into the ether. The writing staff had changed Homer Simpson. Not another cliffhanger, but hey, we get some reprieve from all of this negativity at least. Because coming up after this short break, we're taking a look at what they call jerk-ass Homer, as well as what they call zombie Simpsons. But don't you worry, because we'll be closing on a far more positive note in this here roller coaster of emotions. For now, however, it's the song of the week. This week, it's quite possibly the peak of humanity. Not possibly, definitely. This is from content creator The Chewinator. In a brilliant cocktail of memes, this is what happens when Seymour Skinner meets Smash Mouth. Steamed hams, but it's all-star. Back soon, babe. Well, Seymour managed to spy your directions. A superintendent Thomas Walker. I hope you're prepared for an unforgettable lunch and pack. Oh, my God. I'm supposed to roll it. What if I were to purchase French food or all the disguises? Just my own cooking. Super important. We're all dressed as our favorite Disney Plus characters. Lisa, what are you? I'm a melting glacier that's doomed. Okay, that's plenty. Okay, I'm Po Peep, but I'm not using a crook. Where's the boy? I'm not gonna do it. You're not gonna make me do it. I don't care how much they paid. You put on that nose and ears or I'll take off yours. 
Now everybody smile. <laughs> Another billionaire is broke. C. Montgomery Burns has lost his entire fortune, estimated at three billion. Presenting Doritos. <laughs> Be still, my pet. The hour is nigh. Woohoo! Snack break! They're tangy. They're tasty. They're food in the fast lane. Doritos. Hermanson San is without doubt one of the single most iconic characters in all of fiction. In the earliest years of The Simpsons, he was more or less just an atypical sitcom father, secondary to the series' main focus of Bart. Starting with season three, Homer was brought to the forefront, and he was characterized in a very specific way. Homer was not exactly stupid. That is to say that he wasn't borderline mentally retarded. He was a naive simpleton. He was also not unkind. Homer was far from mean-spirited or cruel. While, sure, he was capable of being an asshole or even a little bit selfish, Homer was generally well-meaning and he would realize when he'd upset somebody, trying his best to remedy the situation, even if he did not like that person such as Ned Flanders or Mr. Burns. Homer was not so much an embodiment of the seven deadly sins as he was a parody and expression of them. Enter who we call Jerk-Ass Homer. Let there be no mistake, the Homer Simpson from season 3 and the Homer Simpson from season 13 may share the same name and they may sport identical designs but they are completely different characters. Homer's voice actor, Dan Castellaneta, has described the Homer that was as boorish and unthinking, but never mean on purpose. That was not this new Homer Simpson, referred to as, once again, jerk-ass Homer. While shades of this new character were certainly seen in development through Mike Scully's tenure, it was really in the mid-2000s that the old Homer officially died. In the season 15 episode, Codependence Day, Homer and Marge get drunk at a vineyard, and Homer ends up crashing the family car on his way home. Not wanting to risk losing his license, Homer frames the incident on his passed-out wife. He manipulates her, 
convinces Marge that she was indeed the one driving. And at no point does Homer feel guilt or remorse. Only anxiety at the thought of being caught out in a lie. And when he is, there is no reconciliation, no great moral lesson for Homer Simpson. Only a forced apology. And then the episode ends. Even for his own family, jerk-ass Homer had zero compassion. What the hell is this? The unicorns are you and me, Dad. I drew it myself. What do you think? Huh? Huh? Pretty heartfelt, huh? Huh? Oh, it's heartfelt. There's no escaping that. <laughs> Thanks, honey. You didn't like it, did you? No, 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 it's great. I'm done with it now. Let us compare this Homer Simpson to classic Homer Simpson. In the season four episode, Lisa the Beauty Queen, Homer sold a trip on the Duff Beer Blimp to afford Lisa's entry to a beauty pageant. This was in the hopes of helping his daughter with her body image issues. In A Millhouse Divided, season eight, Homer arranges a surprise second wedding for he and Marge, and this was to make up for their unsatisfactory first wedding ceremony. Homer knew it was important to Marge, so he did this. He went behind her back, got a divorce, so they could remarry with a wedding that Marge would like. Classic Homer Simpson was so likable. At absolute worst, Homer Simpson was a dimwit. Son? A woman is a lot like, um, a refrigerator. They're about six feet tall, 300 pounds. They make ice and... Oh, wait a minute. Actually, a woman is more like a beer. They smell good. They look good. You'd step over your own mother just to get one. But you can't stop at one. You want to drink another woman. So I says, yeah, if you want that money, come and find it, because I don't know where it is, you baloney. You make me want a wretch. Jerk-ass Homer, on the other hand, is totally unlikable. At absolute best, Jerk-ass Homer is a callous asshole. He's also retarded. And I'm not using that term as a pejorative. I mean, he is actually retarded. The new jerk-ass Homer is, in fact, mentally retarded. It's canon. Where did that rat come from? He must have brought it in with him. Damn it! Man, is he dumb. Zombie. Noun. A willless and speechless human held to have died and been reanimated. Merriam Webster. The concept of zombie Simpsons is perhaps best summarized on the fan website Dead Homer Society. The website argues that The Simpsons today is a hollow shell, overanimated, underthought, and thoroughly mediocre. As of the time of writing, The Simpsons has just kind of existed for the last 20 odd years. It hasn't had much to say for the last two decades. And if ever it has, it's something that The Simpsons has said before. Starting in 2001, with season 13 and extending through season 18, The Simpsons showrunner was once again 
Al Jean. It was a welcome return, and certain media outlets, such as MSNBC, would praise the show's return to form and increase in general quality, though preemptively, before season 13 had even commenced. Critical and fan response to the seasons, though, after they had aired, were mixed, though with a stronger lean towards the negative. This period is often viewed as very much derivative of older seasons. The phrase, same old shit, indeed comes to mind. Elgin describes the biggest hurdle during this time to be thinking of fresh ideas, further stating that people are so on top of things that we've done before, so the challenge now is to think of an idea that's good but hasn't been seen. Did you catch that? There is a certain detail in what Elgin said that I find very telling. People are so on top of things that we've done before. It's not the staff's problem that The Simpsons has become stale. The problem is that the viewers have noticed. I trust that you recall the Oakley and Weinstein response to the Seymour Skinner controversy and the unfairness levied toward fans. This was, and continues to be, the real problem. It is something that I only discovered throughout the course of my research and have seen remarkably little discussion of. So what the fuck happened to The Simpsons? How did we get this zombie Simpsons? It's lack of accountability. Sure, there are other contributing factors, and yeah, we are going to explore more of this zombie Simpsons phenomenon, but this is a crucial thing to make point of, to make note of right now. The Simpsons was stale, yet at every turn, staff seemed more willing to blame the fans than to look introspectively. As Elgin said, people noticed the derivative nature of The Simpsons, and that's why they must strive to remain fresh. Does that mean that, had we not noticed, there would have, would have been no attempt to remain fresh? Between my month's worth of research and lifetime watching The Simpsons, I honestly don't think that there would have been. This summer, between honor and dishonor, between family and enemies, between July and August, a line will be drawn and then colored in yellow. Run, run, jump, jump, rest, rest. Now I know we've had a rough day, but I'm sure we can put all that behind us. On July 27th, a secret will be revealed. Look at that. You can see the four states that border Springfield, Ohio, Nevada, Maine, and Kentucky. Oh, yeah. An empire will rise. They have two buttons behind this desk. One will supply your town with power. The other releases the hounds. Just look into your heart, and you will find the answer. And a family will fall. It was you. We want Homer. We want Homer. Apology is tossed around a lot these days. 20th Century Fox presents Homer. Ah! More, please. Marge, 
Lisa, Bart, Maggie, Mr. Burns, Smithers, Krusty, Barney, Lenny, Carl, Itchy, Moe, what? Grandpa, Apu, Wiggum, Milhouse, Nelson, Ralph, Selma, Addy, Bumblebee Man, Willie, Jimbo, Skinner, Otto, Rockman, Reverend Lovejoy. Here's the money shot. And a cast of thousands in the movie event 18 years in the making. Flanders! Always room for one more in the Flanders clan. And the fate of the world hangs in the balance. A good pig. You little, I'll teach you to laugh at something that's funny. The Simpsons movie in theaters worldwide, July 27th. It had come years too late, and the product was more than a buck shot. But nonetheless. The Simpsons movie would release on July 27, 2007, directed by David Silverman, and written by a team of 11 different people. That team included, but was not limited to, Matt Groening, James L. Brooks, L. Jean, Mike Weiss. Somewhat of an editor's note here, I colossally fucked up both parts here. This guy's name is not Mike Weiss. It is Mike Reese with an R, not with a W. I knew that in all of my notes and in scripting, I did write Mike Reese. But for some reason, I pronounced it as Weiss every single time without fail. I just needed to issue that correction before we go on. It is Mike Reese. That's my bad. On we go. David Merkin, and Mike Scully. It was the last time that The Simpsons felt like it was truly a big deal. And insofar as new Simpsons content, this may have also been the last time that it was so much as culturally relevant. The film grossed over $500 million worldwide, and maintains an 87% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And, you know... It's okay. Let's talk about this movie. In the film, Homer's carelessness causes mass pollution at Lake Springfield. This leads the US government to respond by quarantining the town beneath a dome. Facing the wrath of the townsfolk, the Simpsons escape to Alaska, and it's from Alaska that they discover that Springfield is to be blown clean off the map. Jerk ass Homer is completely unconcerned, and this causes his family to abandon him as they return to Springfield in attempt to prevent its destruction. What follows is a Homer Simpson redemption story, and we're treated to shades of that classic character that was so loved in those early seasons. Though the ending, it may leave a sour taste. Homer and Bart save the day together, though it is only Homer who is heralded as the hero. And everybody is just fine with that, even Bart. It pretty much negates Homer's character arc throughout the film, and we are left exactly where we began, with jerk-ass Homer. He learns nothing. The film, it did have an appreciably 
fresh plots. Its biggest negative, though, were the film's themes. They were retrads. I mean, sure, we had never seen The Simpsons move to Alaska specifically, but they had moved from Springfield in the past. The Springfield townsfolk hadn't turned on the family to quite this degree, but Homer and Co. had wrought their ire at least once every season. And the list, it goes on. Homer and Marge's marital problems. Bart's resentment of his father. The more that the plot elements are scrutinized, the more that you notice that these are all old ideas, just ramped up and with higher stakes. It doesn't make the film bad by any means. It is honestly actually quite good. But what it does is reinforce the idea of zombie Simpsons. Approaching its 20th anniversary, The Simpsons, it aired one of the most controversial episodes in 2008 as part of season 19. That 90s show. In yet another retread, this is a flashback episode and it details the relationship between Marge and Homer in their early 20s, significantly retconning established history by placing the events in the 1990s. The Simpsons is a long-running television show, and it has a floating timeline, so moving dates for series law is a, di is a, it's a given. It's really not that big of a deal, and I personally am unbothered by at least the general concepts. But what really rubbed audiences the wrong way was the particular setting, the 1990s. This episode was just one big retread. It's the vector of this very problem. That 90s show lampoons a decade that The Simpsons had already spent 10 years parodying. If The Simpsons wasn't already a hollowed out shell of a once great show, it had, without question, become that now. Also, Homer apparently invented grunge. We are sadgasm, and this song is called Politically Incorrect. <gasps> oh. Pain is brown, hate is white. Entering season 21, The Simpsons surpassed Gunsmoke as the longest-running scripted TV show in United States history, and to very little fanfare. For a while from then, there's not much noteworthy. Seasons continued to slowly dwindling Nielsen ratings as general interest in the show reached its yet lowest points. While early season nostalgia persisted, Consensus was that the show had become somewhat of a fallen titan. Following cancellation threats and 30% pay cuts to Simpson staff in 2011, a certain episode aired at the season 23 finale. And it may very well be absolute rock bottom. Springfield Rail Yards, where Lady Gaga's fabulous freighters bumped and grinded its way into town. This is Lisa Goes Gaga. And this is an image of a middle finger. 
You see, classic Simpsons had made fun of popular culture. As detailed last week in part one of this exploration, The Simpsons was counter-culture. Originally. In large part, that helped it achieve the insane levels of popularity that it had. Celebrity guests were uncommon, and they would appear either as one-off characters or as a mocking portrayal of themselves. As the years progressed, celebrity appearances grew more frequent, and their presence in episodes became more like advertisements for these people. Leonard Nimoy, or Adam West, appearing in Cameo to make fun of themselves, became a season 17 episode starring Ricky Gervais, in what was an exercise in self-flattery. Really, the entire point of this episode is that it has Ricky Gervais in it. Nothing more, nothing less. And that brings us to Lisa Goes Gaga. In this episode, singer-songwriter Lady Gaga comes to Springfield, and she befriends Lisa, the one member of the Simpsons clan who should not give a shit about Lady Gaga. But they become friends, and events that follow showcase how fun, and how quirky, and how gracious, and kind, and what a humanitarian Lady Gaga is. While, ironically, the sheer concept of this storyline only really showcases the conceit and vanity of Lady Gaga. For entirely different reasons, I am personally offended and insulted by this episode. Let me explain why. And I do apologize ahead of time for if I get a little bit emotional here. There is a sadness spreading throughout Springfield. And Lisa... She's the saddest of them all. This is erroneously called depression, thereby perpetuating the bullshit misconception that a serious psychological illness, of which I suffer from a variant of, is no more than being sad. By simple virtue of fucking existing, Lady Gaga cures Lisa of her depression. This is an image of my middle finger. To anybody involved in the production of this episode, go fuck yourself. Lisa Goes Gaga drew an audience of 4.8 million, making it the lowest rated episode of The Simpsons up to that point in time. This was the modern reality that was The Simpsons. It continues to exist as a television institution. The show quality drifts between subpar and outright bad. Upon acquisition of 20th Century Fox, The Simpsons is now owned by Disney. And ain't that just fucking dandy. (laughs) Many classic episodes from the first eight seasons have been subject to heavy editing for the Disney Plus streaming service, calling into question the preservation of classic Simpsons for future generations. Along with that, the season 3 episode Stark Raving Dad has been pulled from global TV syndication and remains absent from Disney Plus. This is following new allegations 
against the corpse of Michael Jackson. Regardless of what one might think about said accusations, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many others, it has absolutely no bearing on this episode's content. Though The Simpsons lives on, and it has experienced somewhat of a second boom period, in what I refer to as the golden age of Simpsons memes. And oh my god, the Simpsons internet meme phenomena is truly incredible. In a strange way, The Simpsons as a meme is the best that the franchise has been in like 20 years. In just the last three, three and a half years, I have probably watched more steamed hams shitposts than I have classic Simpsons episodes. Delightfully devilish, Seymour. What a time to be alive. As the phoenix that was The Simpsons burns, rising from the ashes is a bizarre mimetic afterlife, and it has attracted millions in the same way that the show had over 30 years ago. It is not a perfect circle, but there does seem to be a satisfying loop. So, in conclusion, what the fuck did happen? Well, it was a few things. Of course, this jerk-ass Homer. And we do have that lack of accountability on part of the later showrunners. Matt Groening had pretty much left entirely by the turn of the millennium. There are things that I skipped over, such as competing animated shows like South Park and Family Guy, stealing interest away from the then-tired old Simpsons. The repetitive plots of later Simpsons also played a major factor in its decline, as did its graduation from counterculture to popular culture, with the celebration of celebrities as opposed to mocking them. There's also just plain old franchise fatigue. Something is around for so long, it just gets tired. It just grows old. It happened to Star Trek. It happened to Dragon Ball. Hell, it has occurred twice with Doctor Who. There exists a myriad of causes for the decline of The Simpsons. And ultimately, we're at a point where the continuing existence of the show does far more harm to its legacy than it does good. Not to be hypocritical, but I don't think that the decline in quality or the reasons for it really matter. What matters are those first eight, nine, even ten seasons. There's so much focus placed on what went wrong, and there doesn't seem to be enough on what went so fucking right. Obviously, I too am guilty of that in this very episode. But that classic Simpsons run, it's fucking excellent. Dare I say, it's fucking perfect. Cherish those years. Rewatch those seasons. There is something so special about that run, and it's much harder to explain why it all worked so well than it is to posit reasons as to why that all stopped. The Golden Age of the Simpsons might as well be the greatest piece of art that has ever come from this species. It is my Exhibit A for the creativity and passion projects of the human race. The Simpsons 
it used to be great. And now it is not. Let's focus more on the peak and less on the valley. Matt Groening is an odd fellow, but I must say he's... Boring! And that is the curtain call, my friends. Podger is in the works. And I hope that you enjoyed this journey as much as I enjoyed putting it all together for you. Listen to my voice. Ugh, it's so bad. I'm sorry. So bad this episode. It was a lot better for part one, but what can you do? Such is life. Like and subscribe. All of that obligatory nonsense that I have neglected for 27 episodes now and will neglect going forward. I don't want to tell you what to do, but I would appreciate a thumbs up and a subscribe. Thank you. (laughs) But can you believe it? Can you believe it? We are still not done here. We are still not done here. In part three of our little Springfield adventure, we will be counting down my 20 favorite episodes of The Simpsons. That'll be coming at some point within the next six days. So tap that bell icon to stay notified. Next week, next week, We are just taking it easy next week. So, I don't know. I will have played Skyward Sword HD by then. Not all of it, but some of that. So, I'll probably chat about that. There's also Poye McGregor. That should be a good fight. As of recording, that has not yet occurred. As of publishing, it has. But as of recording, it hasn't. So... You know, that is going to be very noteworthy. It's bound to be noteworthy. So, Dallas, I'll have something to say about it. Because I really should be talking more about MMA. I don't do it enough. And that'll be one hell of a fight. It should be. Break a leg, you two. Not literally. Figuratively. You know the expression. <laughs> anyway, I'm out of here. Thank you for being with me. I really do appreciate it. And I really do appreciate you. Keep on being amazing. Bye. We are dead. So the people of the people is as you've ever seen We write songs No one likes Except for people who get us Structures up That's not enough Say we